Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 71 of DM Discussions, the podcast for players and DMs alike, where we cover a wide variety of topics to help you with your games. I'm your host, Ryan Reeder, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Ben Bumhofer. How are you doing tonight, Ben? I am super excited and ready to go on a journey. To a specific location? Yeah, you know, some place full of radiance, if you will. Like a citadel? Yeah, but the best part about this is that we are not going on this journey alone. Oh, we get to bring a guide? Yes, we do. <laughs> the How best exciting. guide that we could possibly have. Yes. Joining us tonight is one of the co-leads for the Radiant Citadel book, Ajit George. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Awesome. I've I've been looking forward to this episode. I think I I think I contacted you a few months back at this point and then of course the book got delayed and we were just like ah crap we gotta we gotta push this back a little bit um but this is i've been looking forward to this for a long time so uh we've got a ton to talk about there's a bunch of really cool uh things in this book but before we get started uh why don't you tell everyone just a little bit about yourself sure Uh, my name is Aja george i am i am the creator uh co-lead and writer on the new Dungeons and Dragons book, uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. Previously, I was a writer on Van Ricken's Guide to Ravenloft, and I've written for a number of indie games before that. Uh, my, in my full-time job, I am director of operations of an international nonprofit called the Shanti Bhavan Children's Project. And you can see us on Netflix on the original documentary series, Daughters of Destiny. Super cool. Uh, it's fantastic. If you have not uh, seen that before, definitely go check that one out. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's jump in uh, a little bit into Radiant Citadel. Um, I love that there's a whole front section to this book that just describes the Citadel itself. Um, and I know uh, originally when this came out, I saw a lot of people going, well, isn't sigil a thing? Like, isn't that the same thing as sigil? It's like a floating city floating around. And it is not just another sigil. What what makes the Radiant Citadel like so unique and its own thing? Yeah, I, I think it's one of those interesting things. Um, you know, when people compare it to sigil, I, I think what is actually what they're saying is they're challenged by something that's genuinely new and original. And so our brains as human beings sort of try to connect it to something that we know already. And particularly, I think we've been trained with so many reboots, uh, like Star Wars again and again, and Star, like Star Trek again and again, and like Marvel again and again. And just, it's just like, oh, I have to fit this into something that I already know, a paradigm. So it's, it's, it's a city in a different plane, and it can allow you transport to other locations. So the closest thing I can think of is Sigil, right? Um, and in many ways, um, I can get that. Um, but on, on the other hand, the city is so different, vibrantly different. And if I were to to, to kind of give you know a snapshot as, as to why it's different, um, I mean, I think fundamentally from top to bottom, it's different. But um, if I were to think about Sigil, I would describe it as a dystopian... Victorian London. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of people that have said that. You know, some of the language around it kind of makes you think of that. Um, I think that makes sense. 
Um, I would describe the Radiant Citadel as a utopian or fragile utopian um, solar punk, um, you know, solar punk um, New York City. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that's how I, w- I would think about it, you know, uh, an immigrant city. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's why those two cities are diametrically different. But everything from the governance, um, the political system to like how knowledge is transported or, or passed on, um, you know, the factions that are there, the leadership that's there. It's just so, you know, radically different. Um, and also, I think with Sigil, when I think about Sigil, and I love Sigil, um, it, it is probably uh, one of my favorite places in D&D, you know, period. Um, you know, big, big Planescape fan, um, and, and Sigil was very important to me. But I would say that um, Sigil is very surrealist in that, like, if you look at it too hard... Um, logic starts to fall apart. Like you're like this city can't actually exist. In, in <laughs> if you if you follow like the logic like of how it works, everything would just collapse, or everybody would be killing each other all the time, or they're just it would just it would just you know you have to have the lady of pain like kind of wave her hand every so often to make the city continue to function because it's otherwise it can't right. It just yeah. doesn't it doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. um, and that's totally cool. Like I am all in favor of surrealist fac- fiction. Um, some of my favorite stuff is surrealist fiction, but it doesn't have a logical like coherence to it. Um, my brain sometimes works in that surrealist fashion, but in this case, I really needed the city to make sense. Um, and some levels, it's you know there is that like okay, it's magic that makes sense, but it's like the basic utilities come from the rural diamond, and that is where the food and the water and the light and kind of the basic things come from. Mm-hmm. Everything else kind of makes sense. Like the, the it, it it does hold together. Like there's a trade system, there's a governance system, there's a tax system, and there are reasons why all of this works and how it can also get disrupted. Like it 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 does take a community working collaboratively and understanding um, they have to work together to survive. Partially, they're in the deep ethereal plane, and if they don't work together, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. That kind of is a force function for um, people working together. I- I'm a believer that, generally speaking, human beings, if they're they're in a, in a type situation, um, communities will work together to overcome those obstacles. There will always be that person that's like, "I'm here for myself, and I'm just going to shoot you all." Mm-hmm. But a lot of others, a lot of a lot of communities in crisis moments have shown to work together, and I think. The Rain Citadel is in a very challenging place, right? In the deep ethereal plane with the painting bloom, this like, you know, you know, super massive ethereal cyclone in the background threatening it. And they have to work together to survive. And so it is this fragile utopia. Um, so th- there's some real, fu- I mean, I think I've gotten into quite a bit of detail, but there's some really fundamental differences between this, between Sigil and uh, the Rain Citadel. Yeah. And that's yeah. one of the things that, you know, just kind of reading through the intro and everything that really kind of struck me is just the fact that, you know, the, the, the commonality and the, you know, the different communities really working towards the common good. It really makes it a, a place that I want to visit in my campaigns. I want to go to, to experience like some goodness, you know, there's, there's a lot of D and D out there and a lot of places where there's a lot of bad crap going down, but you know, the radiant Citadel seems to be, you know, like kind of this beacon and shining place that, I mean, once you get there, there's a lot of different adventure and things that you can do in the Citadel itself, as well as all the different places that it's linked to. And it, it it's very intriguing to me because, you know, it is different than Sigil in that fact. 
I think I think I think there's two things that can happen out of that, right? Especially for players who are not prepared to that. I mean, they're used to like all of the craziness going on in, in Waterdeep, or maybe they're in Sigil, or you know wherever they may be. Most most D and D locations have those kind of problems. Um, it will be a paradigm shift, and I, I'll be super interested in you know seeing players go there because they'll probably continue to look over their shoulders and be confused and be like, yep. <laughs> "Wait, where am I getting robbed?" And there's not a beholder in the sewers, and there's not like mind flayers around the corner, and like you know, a doppelganger hasn't taken over you know this position. Like, and that'll be really interesting to watch out, watch players play that out. In, in cast spells to try to see what like illusion is there and who's who's messing with them and like that will be a incredible palate cleanser and a real paradigm shift for our party as they grapple with the fact that like the the, the destructiveness in most of cities of D doesn't have to be the norm and how do they respond to that what does that mean um and even like the norm of like because you know most most D cities are modeled after european cities um, and this like primacy of libraries and written text. Um, the Radiant Citadel definitely has written text at this point, but no ancient read- written text from, from the ancestors. All of that knowledge is oral from the, from the, the Dawn incarnates. And that'll be another paradigm shift if they're like, well, go to the local library and start researching stuff. No, you actually no. can't. There's, there's, there's only two real locations for that. The quarter Gotta go chat with modern. somebody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the quarter whispers for modern intel and knowledge and the Dawn incarnates for like, you know, past uh, knowledge and wisdom. And I, I think that's really great. I think the other thing is, okay, let's say you get a party there and they're, they're there for a bit and they have this paradigm shift and they're like, hey, I really love this place. This place is important to me. Like, I kind of want to be part of it, maybe run for an office or be part of a committee or I want to fight to protect it. And that's where you kind of put the, the Radiant Citadel in peril mm-hmm. and, um, and, and get the parties to actually feel like this is a place worth fighting for and even dying for, right? Like, know if i feel that about water deep like I, i'd be like hey maybe we just just get the civilians out of the city and let it burn <laughs> you know i mean it's not that great. Like, the, 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 the mass lords of water deep are pretty dystopic a uh, political body like yeah mm-hmm. you know maybe there's some good guys <laughs> on the leadership but mostly they're kind of like it's a pretty autocratic pretty not great political system in my opinion do you really want to protect this system i'd be like let's just get the civilians out and, and like we'll build another city somewhere else Start over. Radiant Citadel, yeah, start over. The Radiant Citadel is worth fighting for um, and worth dying for. Um, it, it, it is it is more than a place. It is an ideal. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's powerful. Like, ideals are worth fighting for and, and, and really making the ultimate sacrifice for. And I can think you make a really great campaign around it. I love, I love that it has such a hub function. Like, it, you, you all laid it out so well as... You, you know, here's the system of governance. Here's the system of trade. Here's like the medical stuff. Here's how yeah. it treats refugees. Here's the food and water. Here's, you know, the, the preserve uh, where you can go in. Um, so I, I love that it can actually, it could be very easily like a pick up and drop, drop in hub to, to anybody's game. It's on the ethereal plane. Like mm-hmm. that can be anywhere it doesn't have to be your prime material plane or anything but it could connect to your prime material plane so i i really love how that's in and it it made me it made me interesting as i was reading through because and i haven't read the whole book through yet but throughout the intro at the very beginning it's just like 
it's on a giant fossil and there's, you know, this giant diamond and there's all this <laughs> stuff like that. And I was just like, wait a second. What is this giant fossil? What is this thing uh, from? Sure. <clears throat> yeah. I, I love the mystery of it. I have, I have, I have to be careful about what I say next, but like it, there, there, there's no fat there. Um, so like, even things that look like a throwaway weird thing, like there's reasons or thought processes and what, you know, whether, where that plays out uh, in the, in future products from D and D, you know, we'll see how that works out, but um, you know, there's no fact. Everything has a meaning and a purpose and a reason for it. Also, I love surrealism. So I do like the weird and I love, um, so that is intentional about me desiring to have strange and weird locations that are truly fantastical. Um, and so it is both like this, there are call, call, not callbacks, but like call, maybe teasers for possible future things, um, while simultaneously, um, you know, just indulging in my desire for high fantasy. Um, and, and in terms of like kind of planning out the city, because the, the Radio Citadel part was written by me, um, I, I read a bunch of books on, on city planning um, and just thought about it. Like I, I, I did cool. the research and I have like, my, there's a bunch of books on my bookshelf that that is just about city planning. And I just indulged in a thought, tons more research that I could possibly use. Though I could easily have written like a 200 page book on the Radiant Citadel, like a, just a, you know, full, um, you know, setting a guide for the Radiant yeah. Citadel because I just have all the notes and the thought processes. Um, and I, I wanted to be grounded as much in real cities, though there are some of the books I also have as an imaginary city. I, I think there's a book called um, Never Built New York. Um, and Never Built New York were, were kind of architectural plans and ideas for things that never came to fruition, but they were kind of plan the sky ideas for New York City. And it's just, it's a kind of a really an amazing book of like all of these different ideas for the, what a city could have been and, and never was. Um, so, cool. yeah, so I, I looked at a lot of things and I thought about it and I researched it and I kind of like, I played with it. But like I said, I really needed the city to feel like a believable city that made rational sense and, and you can disagree with the governmental system you could say like this this and this i believe that these covered governmental systems are possible particularly in in smaller scales um you know brain city life i feel like probably has a couple hundred thousand people maybe more but it's not tens of millions of people yeah and they're in a very particular situation in a very particular kind of um unique uh you know environment i also i'm an optimist and i i believe in I, I believe and think it's important to dream of good futures. Um, I think we need to model the way we would want to live. And, and the rating said a lot of what it has is kind of the way I would love to see um, us live, a participatory democracy that seems transparent and, and clear in its ways of doing things. There's some, and you know, on purpose, there's some structural issues that cause problems like the veto system uh, is, is a commentary on our U.S. Congress uh, but also showing that that there is a way to solve that, um, potentially a way to solve that. Like they, they are coming to compromises because they have to come to compromises. Whereas the U.S. Congress is just like, we're just going to deadlock until destruction or something. Exactly. Like, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I wanted to say, you know, we can do these things, but also um, it can work. Or if you're a demon says like, it doesn't work. There is a, there's a speaker who's continuing to veto and it's like the city starts to collapse or the problems start to fall apart. Great. That's a, that's a, that's a hope for you for, for, for a campaign. Um, so it has both options there. Now, when you're, uh, you know, kind of coming together, building the, the Citadel and coming up with ideas, were you like 
um, limited in what you could do? Or did you basically have just full freedom to do, you know, to throw everything at it and see what sticks to the diamond? Yeah, I, I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted with it. And nice. there was even for like a hot second, a talk whether like I wanted to do it to be, to be sigil. And like for various reasons that that wasn't going to work. Um, and I, I was not interested in doing sigil. Um, I wanted mm-hmm. to create my own thing, but, um, uh, it was very much, um, I had incredible control and authority over the book in a, in a probably in an unprecedented way. <laughs> Maybe I'll never have that kind of level of control. That's, again. that's awesome. That's yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything from, from beginning to end, you know, from the vision docs to who I brought onto the team, um, through the entire vision for the Radiant Citadel. Um, I'm always in discussion. It's important to say that, like, I'm always in discussion with my partner, Wes Snyder, who was the co-lead. Mm-hmm. He was an incredible partner um, and, a, and a true creative genius. Um, but in many ways, he let me make my decisions on these things, particularly for the Radiant Citadel. Like, I bounce off ideas all the time with him. Um, him and my wife, Whitney Strix-Maltham, who was the narrative design consultant, were my two go-to people to talk through ideas um, and to jam um, and to brainstorm with. But ultimately, the writing is mine um, and, um, you know, my ideas and, like, I just had a lot of authority and control over it. Um, so it was pretty much the perfect, um, you, you know, it's just one of those, like, one in a million kind of opportunities you just, you, you get and you 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 you're really grateful for it. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. And, and being able to really kind of like walk into your mind and see everything that's going on there and stuff, knowing that it's what you wanted. It makes it even that much more exciting for me. Yeah. 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 It's, it was an incredible creative process and also very complex and challenging. And my process of working at it is, um, you know, my wife has a very different way of creating things. And I think she, she builds all of the things in her mind in almost, you know, she, she's nonverbal in some of her thought process, which is really fascinating to me because I'm not at all nonverbal. Um, <laughs> it, it, everything, I, everything in my thought process is words. Um, you know, I will see images too, but like there's always words attached to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she will kind of build, we kind of describe her thought process. Like she can somehow work all of these magical things in her brain in shapes and in, in emotions or whatever. And then suddenly it poured out and she can do this pretty damn fast. Like she is incredibly creative at like at a drop of the hat and like i'm in awe of that because i don't have that skill uh, i'm a terrible improver it takes me time i, I <laughs> uh, i've gotten better but like it takes me a little bit time. I, I need to a little bit of time to riff at least compared to people like like her and, and a couple of other my friends who are really good like um, and so it, for me um what it is is like it's like fitting puzzle pieces and like I just continue like pushing the pieces around and iterating and re- almost like it's a puzzle piece that I'm like cutting and reshaping as like, as I'm making the puzzle come together. Uh, and so the radio Citadel kept on iterating and changing and like in, you know, deconstructing and, and it had so, went through so many iterations in my brain. Mm-hmm. And like, I would check with Whitney. It was like, what do you think of this? She's like, I don't like this, this, and this. It's like, great. Let me, let me try this again. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I would tell, ask Wes, what do you think? He's like, well, you know, how about this, this, and this? And I was like, okay, great. That's a good point. You know, let's try this. Right. And so, um, it was, it was, it was wonderful. Um, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer. I mean, some people I think, you know, the creative geniuses that kind of lock themselves in a room and then come, produce a product. I don't know them. I don't think I've ever met somebody like that. I think there are some people like that, but I just, I just don't know them. I think most of the people who, I, I think actually the closest person that I've met that is like, that is my wife. Actually, yeah. she does a lot of that. 
she's kind of a closed door person who kind of comes up with things and every once in a while she'll bounce it off, but she, she's just, she's sort of independent. For me, um, I really love brainstorming with other people and, and I love to iterate and bounce ideas. Off. Big, big collaboration. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, it, it, a, it gets I'm my brain going. Of collaboration for sure. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I, f- I feel like I saw in one of your um, big tweet threads that this was uh, basically ongoing or was in development for roughly two years. Does that, does that sound about right? That's correct. Um, my my pitch to Jeremy Crawford and Wes Snyder um, that was greenlit. Um, I, I could actually look at probably my calendar and give you the exact date. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have it marked in my calendar when we talked. Good day. Uh, yeah, it was an amazing day. Um, it was, whoa, I'm looking at 21 and that's, it's going to go back to 20. Uh, okay, 20 was... Um, it was on, I think it was the 16th. That's what it looks like on the calendar. 16th of June. If I have that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So just about two years. So, yeah. And it was greenlit. It was greenlit then. And then as soon as they, like he, he soft greenlit it, they had had to do it internally. Like he had to go forward and but he said he will make it happen. And so I started working in Vision Docs. I actually started working uh, before that to prepare for the meeting with Jeremy yeah. and uh, with Wes. Uh, but yes, so I would even say that in, in, it started in May, um, really, gotcha. in terms of like my front load work. So from like a behind the scenes perspective, is this like a normal time frame for a D&D published book, or is this a much more extended time period? I think this is probably, and I could be wrong, um, but it's certainly longer than the Ravenloft development cycle. Um, and I think it's probably the longest development cycle of a D&D book in a while. Um, you know, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I imagine you're clearly the original Player's Handbook and, and D&D, um, DM's guy. Sure. Uh, for 5e took you know years of development for 5e right whatever yeah. time frame that was and, and i'm sh- I, I know that they're working on the new iteration and the, that will be multiple years right but beyond those core books i i suspect this is the longest development cycle for any of book. um it was we had a lot the, the writers were on it for nearly nearly a year wow um, that's yeah. awesome yeah, maybe a couple, maybe nine, ten months, maybe about ten months. But like they were on it for quite a long time, um, from onboarding to to their final drafts, it was quite a bit of time. That's really cool. So you were able to to really get in that development time and really really refine and hone everything, yeah. much more so than normal, I guess. Yeah, for sure. So the, the the writers went. They they got their they got their NDAs, and they, they had the first call with me, kind of talk talk things through. Uh, and, and actually, they got their NDAs first, and then they had the call call with me to, to actually explain to them what the project was. And then they would sign in, and then they got the vision docs. Um, then they got in kind of the vision docs, kind of explained the book's purposes, and then it's what I would like to see from the book and what I didn't want to see from the book. Um, what I wanted topics to avoid or things to to not engage with, like you'll see, there's there's no direct theme of war in the book, and that was very yeah. intentional. Um, how we approach the topic of colonization is in the past; it doesn't center colonizers, um, it doesn't name colonizers, you know, things like that, right? So I, I had things that were, 
in the vision doc that I wanted and didn't want to see. Um, and then they did uh, a round of drafts or, or pitches. Um, and each of them gave three pitches as to like um, the land, the setting, and the adventure they would do it. Um, and um, we gave back Wes, myself, and Whitney gave uh, back notes. Um, and then they, and we gave us, gave our preferred one of the three. Um, and then they re, redid the draft with more details for the one that we had chosen. Gotcha. Um, and then we gave more notes on that. And then they, um, they moved forward with the first draft uh, of the location um, that they're working in. Even though the adventure shows first, we wanted them to understand the place they were working from yeah. before they read it, wrote an adventure in it, right? Sure. If you don't know where you're working mm-hmm. from, you don't, you can't write an adventure in it. So they did the locations or the setting material first, the gazetteer material. As it, uh, we've used the location was our kind of our term for it, but until mm-hmm. it became the gazetteer, but the gazetteer material they wrote first and then they wrote the adventure and they did um, multiple drafts of both. They had peer review sessions. They did a uh, co-working sessions. It was a very intensive process in a way that like a, I, I, I have not seen for a D&D book. Uh, before or since that's that's really cool so so it was it was originally envisioned then as an anthology book um so originally it was going to be a little closer my very first idea was closer to van richten's um i had worked on it i just come off of it so like that was more of like a setting book versus like the adventure book correct correct and and both jeremy and wes pushed back and said hey um Settings are challenging, particularly new ones, if you don't have a story to tell in it. Um, people can read the material, but they don't know how to use that material. Ravenloft works, or, or legacy products work, by and large, because there's a ton of material out there already, whether, you, yeah. whether it's 5e or not, right? And the old school players um, can know, know, have, have advantages in that regard, and they can teach the younger generation. The younger generation just... They can find it off of, you know, and write through RPG or wherever they want to print all this material, right? You've got at least some basic about it. There's enough, there's enough kind of collective memory about legacy products. Mm-hmm. Um, a brand new IP and the Radiant Citadel has, is basically a brand new setting across the board. Like everything in that book is the first time it has ever been in D&D. And I think this is the first time for, for a 5e product that has ever, we are, you know, it's brand new material. Um, that, Which is super cool. It just in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. You, it's, you got it's, to inject so much just brand new stuff that has never existed before. Like that's that's just so cool. Yeah, it's an incredible feeling. It, it was it's an amazing feeling. I mean, also I think I'm the first. Yeah, I think that's the first kind of like outsider to like come to Watsi and do something since you know Keith Baker did Eberron, um, and he won a contest for that, right? Um, so that was like what twenty years ago. <laughs> it's, it's wild, right? <laughs> it's been a while. It, 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 across the board, it's it's been pretty pretty amazing experience. Um, so their 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 pushback was: look, um, you know, too much lore, and people don't understand what they're doing. And it's sort of like it's like sort of like reading about New York City in a book versus walking on the streets of New York City, mm-hmm. right? Um, you can read about it about it in the book, but like. Can you can you feel it? Can you understand it? Does it sink in? Does it like mean? Does it mean anything, or just go over your head and you forget about it? And I think they were right. Um, I think having the gazetteer uh, there to give you the setting material, but having the adventures to give a story that, that walks you through those streets um, is very powerful. Very nice. That's, that's super cool. So, 
with the them working on the adventures and everything, you know, of course, you know, throughout the whole process, did you ever have a moment where, uh, you know, you had something that you thought was kind of set in stone, was ready, and and then all of a sudden it's like, oh no, we're completely changing this, and then it had to like trickle down into the different adventures and and uh, alter a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, there were a lot of curveballs uh, at different places, and when you have a lot of team members, um in a very long, complex process, you know, at one point, um, you know, my position, part of my responsibility co-lead was to be basically the producer of the book um, internally. Um, And so I was leading a team of, I think, 22 people at one point. This includes consultants and, um, you know, just, you know, team members that were, that were part of the process, but not as writers uh, and were helping and advising and yeah, that's a lot of people to juggle and a lot of complex personalities and a lot of timetables. Um, so I would say that I, I ran into multiple curveballs in multiple stages. Uh, but I, I lead teams for a full time job, um, and I, I'm kind of used to it. And so what you do is you just you iterate. You 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 have that moment of like, oh god, I've got to figure out a solution to this problem, um, yeah. and you 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 do it for like you panic for five minutes, and then you stop panicking, and then you work the problem. Um, and that's just how I how I approach things. It's just like I, I'm I'm a I'm a person who is just very very driven and unwilling to be rattled by any setback and just continually determined to like see things through. And so that with with somebody like Wes, who's also pretty calm under fire, um, and who is great as a creative like support, you know, creative co co lead and creative like team teammate. Um, we were able to like overcome any challenges, but there were definitely a lot of challenges in kind of curveballs. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't, you won't, you have, you, you, it's not possible to have a book of this size over two years um, without having those things. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just, um, you know, speaking with you and like, you know, getting to know your demeanor and, and again, the optimism that you have, it's perfect for a team lead to, you know, bring something like this together. And, you know, despite any sort of curveballs or setbacks, like, having that optimism kind of shine through and, you know, it's like, okay, well, something's here. Don't worry. We're going to take care of it and, and like put it all back together. And again, a lot of that, you know, like positivity and stuff shines through a lot in the, in the book and the, in everything. And again, I really appreciate that. There's this, again, a, a nice bright glowing spot in the universe right now. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I think I wrote about this recently on Twitter about how, you know, it, it makes sense. I, I, I wrote Ravenloft right before. I worked at Ravenloft right before. I, I think of, in some ways, the the Radiant Citadel is not oppositional to Sigil. Though you, you could you could make a very strong argument that it is a counterpoint to Sigil. I, I think in many ways it's a counterpoint to the Domains of Dread. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the myths of the Domains of Dread just take you in. You don't really have a lot of choice. Maybe you can outrun them and escape, but like you're going to probably get drawn in there and then you're trapped into like this, this horror realm, right? Um, and in the light of the auroral diamond is kind of oppositional to it and powerfully so. And that like you follow it by your own choice and you're, you're not forced to, but if you want to and you need it, it will lead you to the radiant citadel. And, mm-hmm. you know, the text sort of implies it's, it's only the ethereal plane and that's more of a game mechanic thing. You know, I think, um, I could have probably pushed it and just been like, Hey, let's just say that the, the light of the, the radiant citadel can be seen anywhere. Anytime you need it, and you you can get there. But that is really meant to be oppositional to the mess of of, of Ravenloft. And I, I kind of would love to see a party that is about to be engulfed by the mess, and then suddenly, like the the light of the royal diamond, like shines on them and like banishes the mist and clusters them back. 
and, and brings the party into the radiant citadel. I think that would be an incredibly epic moment of like in a campaign where they're like, oh yeah, we're going to be pulling the, the, the domains of dread. Maybe they just escape the domains of dread. They're running for their lives. They're just like, I need to get out of this hellscape. And then they see the mist like surround them and about to engulf them. And then suddenly the light of the Aurora Diamond. They're, 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 they're hopeless. They're like, I do not want to go back into the domains of dread. And then the light of the Aurora Diamond like just burns the mists away and engulfs the party and takes it into, into the Radiant Citadel. And I think that'd be an amazing way to like introduce them to the Radiant Citadel. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, that'd I be mean, so cool. It, it, the the fact that um so uh one of the the great things that's added to this is the, the different concord jewels and the fact that you have a lot of them defined but you left so many out there so that you know dms could take them and do whatever they want with them and yeah. the fact that you have so many different ways of actually getting to the citadel it really helps out dms especially you know homebrewing or anything else who want to be able to incorporate it in there um, how, how early in the process of development did you, you know, kind of have those extra Concord jewels just kind of out there floating around? Yeah, I was always about midway through. Like it wasn't a part of the original conception and, and because the original conception was so focused on the existing civilizations. Like I, I built the Radiant Citadel after I had seen the, the location drafts. Like I, I didn't wait for the, the adventure drafts because I needed to start writing myself and I'm, I'm a slow writer in it. I was also managing the project. So there's, there's like, and this is also, it was like a second full-time job on top of my regular full-time job. Yeah. So yeah. Um, <laughs> everything slows, everything was like, I had to really manage my time really effectively. And so I'm a slow writer. So I needed time. Um, so I'd seen the, the location drafts the first round and I knew enough about what their cultures were going to be to start building the Radiant Citadel because the Radiant Citadel is informed by the cultures that created it. Um, and so it made sense for, for that process to be in real life the same way. Um, so I was really focused on like figuring out how the Radiant Citadel functioned and like what, what would the cultures and how does it feel and like what is it, what makes sense. Um, and it would pull small little tidbits here and there. And it's, you can see subtleties about, of how those other cultures are. But I didn't want to put it too dominantly in the Rain Citadel itself because I wanted it to be its own entity. Like I didn't want it just to be a hodgepodge of the other cultures, right? Yeah. It, it is its own entity. Um, much in the same way that New York City is influenced by a lot of immigrants, but it's its own city, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, then around midway through, um, I thought about, for two reasons, really, I was like, well, how do we link this? And, and Wes was part of this conversation and, and he, he really believed in this idea too. Um, it was one of our discussion. There were two two main reasons for it. One was exactly what you say is for, for DMs, right? To 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 be able to have a missing Concord jewel, you know, in in the Forgotten Realms or in 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 Kryn or or wherever you want to. And it has to be in the material plane, at least in theory. Um, the Concord jewels are not really supposed to go anywhere else. And it was an important like limiting function. I, I wanted to make sure that it is not. Um, it doesn't just go anywhere because once you go everywhere, I think that it causes more chaos than anything yeah i mean that's sort of why sigil so chaotic right you've got you know you got demons and, and, and angels and everything floating <laughs> around that place um and i didn't want it to have that kind of weird um kind of conglomeration um but that first was for dms to put it wherever they want in their homebrew or however they want to introduce it and the second was to like open the door for follow-up books um that could have the missing cultures appear in it right and so um, i wanted to leave that door open uh, for, for both angles Cool. Is there is there a reason you settled on, uh, if I remember my numbers correctly, fifteen and twelve? Yeah, um, the fifteen was um, 
the original 15 is because mm-hmm. of the writers themselves. And I had gotcha. we kind of like, we kind of like figured out the book size and like what our, our word count and kind of the, 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 the amount of people that, that would be there. Um, 27 uh, total. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about a couple of things um, and we'll see whether any of that comes to fruition, but it, it kind of made sense with maybe some stuff that might be coming forward. But um, you know, uh, it was also, there were some some ideas that were that are being tossed around about something um, down the road. We'll see if that works out. Um, and simultaneously, it, it felt like a good enough number to give a breath to 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 to, to the kind of like the, the amount of like civilizations mm-hmm. that first graded it, and for DMs to like open up a mul- multiple different pathways, um, and also for future books. That's that's really cool. And this is. Um a very special book because all the writers have brought their own cultures into the different civilizations, which is, is absolutely incredible, especially because like you said, a lot of, a lot of these uh, other books or these older settings and stuff are very European based Mm -hmm. um, just in their like lore and history and look and whatnot. And we, just from a D&D perspective, we have not seen the amount of diversity that is in this book before, both in, either in writers or in just settings, which is absolutely incredible. So what, I guess, um, try and try and actually turn this into, <laughs> into a question other than, other than just a, a cool statement. Um, how does how does that feel or how did that feel being able to pitch that and go we can bring so many other people's points of view and so many other people's culture into D&D and then how do we do that in a way that uh that is just usable by everyone yeah you know, it was a powerful feeling and i think a very important one um I love D and love you know it was the first RPG I ever played. Um, grew up on it, and it will always have a very important place in there. Um, and yet, you know, for for a number of years, um, a lot of books were written uh, by um, I think entirely white people. Uh, you know, most yeah. books were by at least the early books were I think um, all white people, um, and I think in many cases all white men, um, and so. Uh, you had a very specific and very um, uh, limited perspective. It was one one lens on on culture, and like they drew from a bunch of different sources, but it was still a, a very singular lens and a single singular yeah. way of approaching it. Um, and I have a lot of respect for that, and I love it. Um, um, I don't think you know. I I, I want to be generous and, and and assume good faith. I don't think any of those book writers were were racist in their choices, right? Like. But also, they didn't really think about um, including anybody else or reaching out to anyone else beyond, you know, their very small circles of, like, people that they knew that were friends um, that were white men. Um, and what ends up happening is the, the, the book, the game then feels limited in your, um, your place in it and how you see yourself in it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I, I kind of read an interview with um, I think the showrunner Friends, and and she was she'd grappled with criticisms around Friends for a long time, the show Friends, and 
you know, people are like, this is pretty weird. All of these people are in New York City, but it's all white. Well, that's not really New York City. <laughs> uh, and um, and she, 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 she didn't really want to hear that criticism. And then she's come around, actually. I think she didn't want to hear like, yeah, actually, you know, uh, I, I really could have done differently. And you, one of my things is I actually just never got into friends. Like, I'd watch an episode here and there and be like, really connect with any of this this is not like my culture my people like i don't really that's not my new york city experience like i grew up i was born and grew up a little bit in new york city or in, around new york city but that's just me how i see new york city so i, I don't really get this right um and dnd has changed quite a bit over the years and i i think like i think about six seven years ago there was about 20 percent of, of dnd players were women I think Watsi statistics of like 2020 was like 40%, almost 40% women. It's doubled in like just a, just a few years. Yeah. Um, no, there's no, yeah, there's which no, is awesome. on, which is amazing, right? Yeah. There's no, there's no stuff on the ethnic breakdown, but I, I, but I imagine there's a lot of um, brown and black players and we really want to see ourselves in books and it, it is incredibly important to us. Um, you know, I, I was at San Diego Comic-Con um, talking to a couple panels and, one of my fellow panelists is um, um, an influencer by the name of Cyber Steffi, and, and she's also an engineer, I believe, and, and does a bunch of other things. Really, she's in um, in the game sphere, but um, you know, she's a Filipina um, who was going to be on the road to medical school, but like really loved games and kind of rebelled and kind of like <laughs> fled her family because the family was like, "You you have to be a doctor," and she actually yeah. fled to Tokyo and she's living in Japan, kind of doing her own thing and in a space and I showed her the book and she was paging through it. And then she got to the section that was inspired by uh, the Philippines and her, her like her eyes just went wide and she just froze and she was just starting to take photos and she was just like so transfixed. And I just watched her for a few minutes and it was a kind of a powerful experience for me watching her be so deeply moved. Um, you know, I, I, her, her face was just overwhelmed with emotion and she's like, I really wish I had this book as a little girl. Um, and I I said, you know, uh, that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book exists is for, for people like you and, and for your for your younger self um, and, and for all gamers. I, I want to, you know, there's this preconception that like if you're like this book isn't for you and that is the farthest thing from the truth. Um, I think a lot of uh, POC cultures have a kind of a code of hospitality, right? Um, one of yeah. one of my good friends who's a writer uh, is Justice, uh, there was a writer on this book and is a senior game designer at, at um, Wizards of the Coast right now. There's Justice Ramin Arman, and he's a, a Persian um, game designer. And I go over his place every once in a while and whenever I get there, it's just a big, a big feast of food and like lo- a long meal and nice conversation. And then we're having like, you know, Persian tea at the end of it. And he always wants to make sure that he is hosting properly. And it's that the sense of hospitality and desire to welcome and to be understood. And we want, uh, you know, our fellow gamers of all cultures and backgrounds, right? Like so much of this book does not speak to my background, right? I, I am not Filipino. I'm not Iranian. I'm not black. And so I'm also being invited to another person's culture, just as uh, any white game player would be. Um, but we want to invite, uh, there's a sense of hospitality and say, you know, come into our home, you know, be part of our table um, enjoy the same things that we enjoy. Let's play a game together. Um, let's tell stories together. And I, I think that is the sense of what this book is about. No, I completely that's, agree. I, I'd love that. Amazing. 
Yeah, representation and inclusion is very important because it it's there's there's just so much of there's just so much of even if I don't necessarily connect to X, Y, or Z, someone else does. And it's not all about me. And to and to be fair, a lot of the history has been about, you know, quote unquote me. Mm-hmm. And so getting to see more of this stuff where other people can go, that looks like me, or I recognize that is just such a, a an inspiring and super cool thing that it's just branching out from the stereotypical, you know, white guys in a little game shop somewhere in the, the 70s and 80s or whatever to now with the internet and just uh, just this huge cultural boom and actual plays and streaming and people that can be like, oh, they look like me or, oh, this book is written about things that are based on my culture. That's incredibly cool. And I'm, I'm, that's one of the, one of the absolute coolest things about this book getting made in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, on top of that too, just the fact that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the stereotypical white person could actually learn something about, you know, different cultures and open up their eyes a little bit more to be, more understanding to be able to under to know that they can actually relate to other people too. I mean, that's kind of a big thing that, I mean, the world really needs that right now. So yeah. the, the fact that's, that, that's ex- yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking is that like, you, you know, hatred comes from fear and comes from misunderstanding and from alienation and feeling that, you know, something is very, very strange and very, very different. From, from one another and this book is a celebration that of of our differences that we as human beings we are different but still relatable and understandable that we're still um we're still part of the same species we're all human beings um and that we can maybe appreciate these differences about each other and and engage with them and learn from them I, and I, I hope that there's empathy uh that gained from this book i i think the other thing that that is important to note about this book um, is 50% of the writers were women. Um, I had gender equity in that regard. Um, and, and several members were from, from the LGBTQ community. But I, I think when you get 50% of the writers from women and, and several several who are, who are gay, queer, trans, mm-hmm. um, you're going to have a different lens or different gaze. And we talk about the male gaze in, in, in filmmaking, but I think there's the male gaze in writing as well. Um, and uh, whether it prioritizes sexualizing characters or prioritizing violence as, as the only solution, um, you have a very specific type of story that's being told. Um, when you have, um, you know, a, a, a gender equi- equitable breakdown between the writers, then you get stories that may appeal more to women where they say, you know, actually, this story, like this, this actually speaks to things that I've been really wanting in an adventure for a long time. Um, and, and this is more for me. Um, and every once in a while I see somebody like, uh, you know, almost every time that I see anybody struggling with this book, you know, and in terms of a, a critique, it, it's usually it's usually a, ma- a man who is struggling with like, I'm not, I'm not able to just kill the thing with, with my sword. I'm not hitting it with a stick to solve the problem. <laughs> um, and I get that, you know, and, and there's a lot of adventures where combat is, is, a, is a major priority. But um, I, 
there's a lot of non-combat solutions to problems. And I think there's a lot of great opportunities for role players. That's amazing. And just the idea that, you know, a lot of people, at least nowadays, it seems, are, you know, coming together to uh, TTRPGs to, you know, kind of experience things and do things that, of course, they don't do in the real life so of course whether that's you know running around and you know killing mimics with a with a sword or a broadsword or, or whatever or being able to kind of work through you know potential like you know complex feelings putting yourself in different situations so that you can kind of you know go through and, and fail at something but still learn from it and everything like that it opens up a lot more diversity into writing and storytelling and adventures that are out there and i mean Ryan and I have talked about it before. We appreciate all these different ideas and 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 you know plot hooks and adventures that you know definitely give you multiple options of things to do. Just because you know one of the best things about an RPG is you know just the freedom to do what you want. So just confining everything into you know a combat scenario just doesn't really work anymore. So I'm so glad that. There's, you know, more adventures that have those, you know, kind of open-ended scenarios that that work out that way. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I, I, I don't know if you two know that or have ever played the, the video game uh, Planescape Torment. It's a, it's, a, I think, I think it's like, I think it's like nine, like a late '90s, early 2000s game. Yeah, so at like, one point, that, that, that <laughs> it sounds familiar. Yeah, and you look no, back and go, oh gosh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a long time ago. Um, so in that game, it was a it was a kind of a revelation for me. But in that game, there were I think three or four, and it's like you can play this game for like 60, 70 hours or something like that. It's a long yeah. game. There are three or four mandatory combat uh, combat sequences. That is it. You can theoretically, I mean, there's like random encounters that like you have to run away with to, to avoid the combat. But in theory. You can solve almost every other scenario by talking through with um, the the different um, you know opponents in front of you, including the final boss. And in fact, the final right. boss solution is much more interesting by a verbal solution than it is by a physical combat solution. Like you, your ending is just better. I, I think I learned quite a bit about like my preferences stories from that game because what I love. And this is whether it be video games. I mean, some video games, you know, right. You're just going to, you know, you're, you're playing Call of Duty, Call of Duty or whatever. You're just, you're just shooting things, yeah. right? But I think um, in certainly in tabletop games, I prefer very limited combat, lots of role play. But when it is combat, it is high drama. And, and the combat, mandatory combat in Planescape Torment is usually a high drama moment where it's like, oh, shit's just got real. And this is, you are put against the wall. And this is the moment where you have to fight. And I think that way of doing things is really interesting to me because it's like when you are finally fighting, it means a lot more. Yeah. And I, I get it. Um, you know, Diablo works really well. And you're just like killing tons of things. And then you're like the big boss is just like, oh, shit. And, and they do really a really good job of that. And they know how to make that, that adrenaline rush when you find mm -hmm. the big boss. But, but I think for me, the type of role player that I am, I definitely prefer... It, exploring and wandering and talking to all these different NPCs and having these inter interesting interactions, solving things a lot through like social solutions um, or intelligence, uh, you know, you know, problem solving solutions. Yeah. And then having those epic moments where just like, Shh, oh no, I've got we're, 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 we're going to get wiped out. We're, 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 there is no verbal solution to this problem. 
you have to fight. Uh, and that, and those are dramatic moments. Very yeah. cool. Um, and I, I kind of want to use all this too as a springboard to to talk about our, our last few topics. Um, I wanted to kind of get like what what tips would you have for players uh, as they want to create characters and weave these stories within these different, uh, very unique anthologies? Um, you know, I think um, if I were to, let, let's say, maybe I'll, I'll just kind of think, take that from a, from a direction of like, how would you build a campaign out of, it, out of these adventures? And I would really, this is where you really use the, the radio citadels and anchor. And I, I would, I would go with a couple of different options. I would use, um, you know, I would, I would just create to use a life cycle within the radio citadel. Maybe the characters start off as uh, shield bearers, or, or maybe they get signed, assigned by Sholay to go, um, you know, start off from the level one adventure and say, hey, we need you to, you know, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. But let's say the, the most basic would be, for them to join one of the sub-councils or committees, because there's some small ones there, and they've just been approached by a small and minor NPC and be like, hey, we need you to go to you know the night market and, and get this kind of ingredient. And while they're there, they get embroiled in that. And they come back, and they sort of just work their way up through the Radiant Citadel and be like, okay, well, I've got this. And the next person to approach them is maybe somebody from the Court of Whispers, right? And the Court of Whispers has got a, a mission for them, and they need to go out there. And then the next step is like they, they decide to get recruited by the shield bearers and work for the shield bearers for a couple of, you know, a couple of adventures and do things around there. And they move up into maybe finally they're working with Sholei the whole way through. Or maybe they they start to, like, patronize one or more of the Dawn Incarnates. And the Dawn Incarnates are like, yeah, we'll give you a lot of uh, information, but we need you to do these things, right? They're these quests for us and go do these things. Um, and I think uh, particularly the, the, you know, the penultimate or the ultimate the, the, the final adventure i could see very much the dawn incarnate of atagua being like shit my homeland is like you know the dawn incarnate represents uh, atagua and it's it's atagua is like in, in dire straits um from an incursion from the far realm and they want the the pcs to go solve that problem right and so i would i would root it around the, the, the PCs growing within the Radiant Citadel in these different roles, including maybe they're even a Clavager for a little bit for one of the Conqueror Jewels, and they're playlating uh, the Conqueror Jewels back and forth. But the Clavagers also serve as ambassadors uh, uh, for the Radiant Citadel to, to different kingdoms. Um, and so maybe they're, they're, they're there and they're trying to deal with uh, Atash from Akar Sangar, and Atash is like, and I'm yielding Solar, who does not, you know, he does not mess around. He's... Um, He's got one way to interpret the, the universe, and uh, it is by his goddesses way, and that is all the only way he's going to interpret it. But the Radiant Citadel has a different oppositional point of view, and I think going over there and kind of negotiating and then getting embroiled with all the problems was, was there's just some really interesting role play there. Um, it, I think actually, you know, Shadow of the Sun is one of my my favorites, but one of the most interesting to me in terms of like viewpoints. You think about. In that in that adventure, both party both groups that you're dealing with are good. It's just different oppositional viewpoints of good, right? And what, is that, what is, is the, that right? the one Justice did? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really great one in terms of like the two factions that are approaching you are both in theory good. Um the NPCs are their alignment are good. Um and but they're in deep uh, opposition with each other. And I find that I think that's an incredible rarity indeed. I I 
I don't know of another adventure where the two factions that are facing off with each other are both good factions that are pushing in in dire opposition to the point of like bloodshed uh, kind of opposition to each other. They've each got their own form of of good. Yeah, their their, their own interpretation of the worldview, right? Like, yeah. and and I think that that really speaks to like our our way of our life now, right? You know, there are, there are very strong differences between activists um, and they have very, very different opinions about how we need to solve problems Mm -hmm. and they can come to like really dire, um, you know, oppositional points of view with each other. Exactly. Um, It's, it is really cool how, how it's built in such a way that they are standalone adventures, but then you, but you can play them straight through as a singular story and campaign at the same time, which, which I love um, and I also love, and this is, this is also a rarity in D and D that I hope gets fixed at some point, high level adventures. There are not a lot of official high level adventures. And we cap out at 14 in this yeah. book, which is, I, I said, that's a, that is a rarity among official D and D books. So how did you, how did you go about with like the planning, the, the level scheme and <laughs> how much how much more work was it to create a cohesive, balanced, uh, interesting, high level adventure um, in a way that can introduce people straight into it uh, without, you know, playing is if you don't play through those other 13 levels? Yeah, I think you're right. First of all, that you can entirely you absolutely can write an entire campaign from beginning to end. I think there's multiple ways to do it. Um, I know Justice himself is uh, planning, I think, in the future to, to run a campaign and like, jump into that and, and, and go from beginning to end. It would be fun to see how he weaves that together. I know other people are planning that as well. Um, and so I, I, it's very, very feasible. Um, I think we, we step structurally to do so. Um, it just takes a little bit more creativity and, and a little bit maybe more um, thoughtfulness from the DM and more improv between it. Like, this is a place where it's not prescriptive. It's, it's, it's really... Um, we're, we're, we're hoping the door for you to kind of explore what the different tools, tools in the toolbox we gave. Um, I, I've been told, um, you know, that high level of interest, everybody like talks about it in theory that they are really interested in it, but it's a little bit like giant lore dumps. It's like, everybody's like, yeah, I want the 500, 1000 page source book, uh, everything <laughs> in, in the Hyatt realms. And they're like, yeah, I read about 50 pages of it. You know, kind of, <laughs> kind of it's cool, but who has time for a read a thousand page source book, right? I have been told um, that in theory, tons of people want, you know, they talk about wanting it, right, on Reddit and, and social media, but then they don't actually play it all, right? It's just not popular enough at the higher levels. Um, and that most most players really kind of enjoy the low level, mid level kind of games. And they, they, they just kind of, get tired of the characters, tired of the storylines at the highest levels. Um, and I, I, obviously there are, there are exceptions to this and you, you know, um, there are people who really love it, but that's one of the reasons why we didn't go with the higher level adventures um, beyond where we went. Um, in terms of story hooks, I think um, the stakes in the higher level ones kind of pull you in and make you like want to be involved in some level or the other. Like Shadow of the Sun, it's like you know, you've got this city-state, and you, if you care enough about the characters, and hopefully the NPCs are compelling, you're going to be like, 
at least you're going to be curious as to what the hell is going on here. It's a, it's a, a city run by an angel. It's a, an angelic It's super soul. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the premise is just kind of wild and fascinating to me. Like, what does a city look like when it's ruled by an angel? Is like, that is sort of the ideal, right? Isn't things going to be great? No, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think you get pulled into it by that's the hook. I think, you know, um, in in uh, Orchids of the Invisible Mountain, um, you've got, you know, you've got this, uh, you know, you've you got this incursion, you've got like this land that is like being overwhelmed by, the, you know, the, that is overwhelmed by the, uh, by the far realm while simultaneously um, got, uh, you know, the Feywild, like, creeping in and, like, putting flavor in there. And it's, just, it's just a like, it's a, it's a wild, like, trippy land. It's like the Feywild and the far realm are bleeding into this into this land. What does that mean? Um, and the dungeon at the end of that is, I think, one of the coolest dungeons I've ever seen in any D&D setting. Like, I don't know if you want spoilers, but like, um, I don't know. Yeah, right. we, can I, do light, we can do light spoilers. Yeah, There's yeah, a warning here. There's a warning for yeah, yeah, here. Spoiler warning yeah. in case you, you do not want to listen, you know, meet for a few seconds. But you're, you're wandering around like the, the body of a dead god uh, that is quasi cognizant, quasi Like, you're like, does it know I exist? Does it care that I exist? Like, That's you, you cool. Get you, you get care that I'm walking through it? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're walking through its, like, desiccated body, and that is the dungeon. And, like, maybe it cares in the same way that maybe you care that an ant is crawling up your leg, but maybe you don't even notice an ant is crawling up your leg. And maybe you decide to bend over to flick it off, or maybe you, you, you don't do anything with it. And that's literally what is going on here, and it is wild and trippy. Um and it is one of my, I think my one of my absolute favorite constructs in the entire uh, book is is the the final the final dungeon of the book. I think I'm looking at the map for that, and it is crazy! <laughs> Holy crap! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's a wild, wild one, and I I, I hope um, because it is a you know a fae, far realm like godlike figure, godlike entity. I I hope it makes a a future um, appearance in, in further books where oh, you know, yeah. build it even further and like, really build it out and, you know, do, do a lot more with it. But I, I think it's just a, just, just a brilliant idea. Uh, and uh, Terry Romero, who's actually a friend of mine for about, you know, we've known each other for over a decade now, I think, uh, came up with it. And it, it, was, it was pretty damn brilliant. Um, oh, this is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't gotten <laughs> that far in the book Maybe. yet, but whoa. <laughs> Maybe maybe that's maybe that's the thing we'll have to run when we get together. Yeah, yeah I think maybe this that is cool. one. This is really cool. Yeah, that'd be that'd be fun. Um, one of the things I have to mention uh, before we kind of kind of wrap up our discussion is the the gadget seer yeah. is so awesome. Um, I love that that's included at the uh, end of every adventure because it's such a great like. Here's how to pronounce stuff, which is super nice. Here's uh, a lot of the extra lore and interesting bits that you can read through so you can flavor the adventure up more beyond just the text that's written. Was that always the plan to include something like that? Yeah, 100%. Uh, uh, the Gazetteer was always going to be part of it. Uh, it was the first thing the writers wrote before they started writing the adventure. 
Um, it was very important. Uh, it gives, as you, you rightly um, pointed out, it gives further context to the DMs to, to build out if, if the players are taking detours in the adventure a little mm-hmm. bit and they want to like stop by shops or they want to do these things. This, this gives you a whole realm of, to make those places real. Like, you're like, oh, I want to go have a meal with an NPC. Great. Like, here are the foods that they eat, you know, and here's the customs and here's here's how the government works or here's some societal norms. And like, that is super helpful. And then the legends and lores, there's a lot of hooks for new adventures, right? You could, I, I think you could play this book for multiple years with just the material in here oh, yeah. and have an incredibly gr- engrossing campaign because you've got the 13 solid adventures. You've got 16 new locations all of them with a bunch of adventure hooks and lore information to use. Um, you could be exploring this, 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 you could create a whole world out of this or multiple worlds out of this uh, and be exploring it for years in a campaign. And that was a goal um, that, that, that you could come back to this well and you realize it's sort of like, you know, once again, I'll throw back to Planescape Torment. You can play that game through um, once and you'll only scratch the surface of all that stuff that's going on there. And it's pretty wild for a game that was like, came in 2000, right? 2001. Yeah. Um, you, you play it multiple times and you, you, you create this, these dialogue paths that are just surprising to you. Um, and, and well before, like, you know, Mass Effect or Dragon Age or any of those games were doing that thing, um, Planescape Torment was doing it. And it was it was pretty uh, pretty amazing for me. And I, I played that game like six, seven, eight times maybe, um, just like trying to find all the different things and, and just finding new stories out of it. Um, and I think that's the same thing here, that you're going to find tons and tons of new stories and so much replayability in this and i think also player options too you know i know it's not a player facing book in the traditional sense but you could very much make your pcs and have their backstories from be from any of these locations including the radiant yeah. citadel yeah and i i honestly really hope we see something similar to that in adventure books and such going forward because it really is an incredible addition i think uh it, I know as uh, someone who DMs far more than they play, <laughs> that would be <laughs> extremely helpful for me uh, to just add the authenticity and add add the extra stuff. So, yeah, I think it does make your 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 setting and your adventure feel more real and three dimensional. Um, mm-hmm. I think it gives really really useful tools to to to, to game masters. Um, Ben. You got it. Anything else before we we kind of wrap up? No, I mean it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about this. I, yeah, I can't think of anything else other than just, uh, gosh, I just I love the incarnate the incarnates. I just want to say that they're really cool. Yeah, the incarnates. Are cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that too. It was it was sort of my way of kind of talking about the fact that a lot of cultures um, did not start with written language as their way of transmitting knowledge. In India, for generations, hundreds of years, it was uh, transmitted orally. Um, and, and I know that is in different parts of the world the same story. And I wanted to kind of use that as a, as a way of just discussing and giving perspective shifts. And that, like, things that we think are, are truths or fundamental truths are not always tr- not always correct. And, um, and what is it? mean when you have oral traditions and oral like knowledge and well you're getting perspectives from very specific points of view is that truth well yes or no as much as the written word is being the perspective of the writer right and so yeah. um yeah i just i love the dawn incarnates because they represent some very interesting perspectives of knowledge and information 
Um, but they're also their identities are shaped by the individual spirits in there. Uh, but, and then they become their own identity that were independent of all the different spirits. So it's like this, you know, amalgamation that creates its own unique identity. But I also like the idea that there's like lost spirits in there that, that don't often talk and you, you have to actually find their name or find something about them to get them to wake up and, and reveal this lost piece of lore that is thousands of years old and, and, and can lead up into new doors and new adventures that could, could only um, be imagined about. I just, I think the Dawn Incarnates are just, they're, they're story generators for the, for the, you know, the DM to do mm-hmm. so many things um, and, and to have very powerful emotional moments, right? So let's say you find the spirit of, um, you know, a a a a, uh, a person who was um, who died tragically, and their spirit found their way into the dawn incarnate, and has been hibernating for, for years, and then it is awakened by by the players somehow or the other, like they find the name or they find some other trigger to, to awaken it, and this lost spirit has a tale to tell the the, the players, and that the tale is tragic and powerful and emotional. And it maybe that tale recontextualizes a past moment that the players had in, in an adventure. They're like, "Oh, I, we do these things," um, but suddenly we find out that we missed something, or there's some kind of thing that we could go back to, and it could be a callback, or, or it could lead to a new story. You know, not just information, but I think emotional residents, because they are spirits of people who have passed, um, and some of them will be tragic ways that they passed, or the, the, some of them will have like. Maybe they, they'll have a long lost love that they want um, to have a message passed on to, or they've got family members that, that, that they're missing and they want um, to, you to find out about them. Like what happened to my great, great grandchildren? Like, are they still alive? Are they still there? Um, you know, and, and for, for, for spirits of the land, like they might want to know how their grove is doing. Is it still there? Can you, can you go plant a tree there for, for, to make sure there is so much rich, role-playing yeah. opportunities with the Dawn Incarnates if you really dig into it. Um, you know, I, I could have re- written hundreds of pages probably just on them um, because I have so many thoughts about how they can be used in games. But, you know, I'm just throwing out some stuff right here off the top of my head about w- w- the real potential. Uh, when you when you think about what they're made of, they're made of the spirits of those of people who have passed in, in so many different ways. Violent and non-violent. And the, spirit, the, the spirits of, of the land um, that have come and, and maybe the, the land that they had was destroyed and it's no longer there and, and they want you to do something about that or maybe they just miss it and want to know what's so many so many storytellers and I think that you can make those very powerfully emotional in ways that like going to a library is not going to be emotional exactly. you're probably <laughs> not going to get emotional just give me a lore dump yeah, yeah exactly you're not going to get emotional doing a lore dump in camera Right, you're just yeah. like, all right, I got, I got the mission, I got the, the piece of information I need. Going to on to the next mission. No, no, this skill allows you the potential to to make that lore dump powerful and resonant. Mm-hmm. And those are, I think, the moments that you, as a game master, are striving to create for your players. Oh yeah, is those powerful emotions. I mean, that's what I live for for gaming. That's why I come to the table. Yeah, yeah. I, I and I I hadn't thought about that before and that's uh, that's such a great great tip and a way to encapsulate um the dawning card just it is a a buffet role play opportunity it is it really is i i, th- I thought about this for a long time as i was developing the dawn incarnates and, and 
uh, my brain was just like electric fire of like all the possibilities you could do with it. Do with them. I that's, just that's super cool. I just know I need to incorporate the Ruby Pangolin in there because <laughs> it's a pangolin. So cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pangolins are so amazing and awesome. Uh, that was uh, Serena Murray's creation. And, uh, um, you know, I was really happy. I you know, basically asked the writer. So I was like, okay, what is the, what is the animal or the, or the, or the plant or tree that represents your people? That's awesome. Uh, and, and what is the gemstone that represents your people? And she said, Ruby and Pangolin. I was like, great. You're done incarnated as a Ruby Pangolin. And she's like, great. That works great. So, it's awesome. Well, I it. welcome it greatly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Her her, her culture is, is inspired by Thailand. Thailand, um, certainly, Pangolin is, is uh, an important creature, uh, endangered, but an important creature of other culture. Yeah. Man. I feel like we could probably talk for hours more, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we we don't have forever. So, um, man, this has just been such such an amazing discussion, um, and it, we're kind of uh, kind of follow it up right away with um, moving kind of into our our community content. Uh, I really wanted to make sure we talked about. Um, the DMs Guild product that came out at the same time as this called Journeys Beyond the Radiant Citadel, uh, written by many of the writers uh, who did Radiant Citadel. And uh, you were a writer on this as well. Um, so I wanted to first off shout this out as a great supplementary content and then just kind of ask you just real quick a little bit about that and why that would be interesting for someone to grab as a supplement for their Radiant Citadel campaign. Yeah, I, I wrote the introduction. So just just as an FYI, I, I didn't do anything more of that. I'm, I'm not getting any royalties from it. Um, but they, uh, but Anthony asked me uh, as a project manager if I would do the introduction, and I was happy to do so. Um, you know, I really believe in it. Seven of the other writers on, on Journeys to the Radiant Citadel wrote for this. And they really, what they did is they, the, the most important part probably is they expanded um, the the lore for the gazetteers. So particularly for those of you who want more lore uh, in the settings, like this really happens. Um, you know, Aaron Roberts uh, created the covenant of gods that rule um, God's breath. And I think that that is a really powerful and useful addition um, for God's breath because the covenant of gods there are important and, and, and valuable. And I think uh, Mario added a map uh, of of the, the region for Sunset Zone. So like there, there's a bunch of really useful things that you, you don't have in the, in the, the core book um, that, that add to the campaign in really important ways, I think really, really useful ways. So it's, it's a very, if you like the book and you're hungering for more, this is my number one choice for a supplement because it is written by the writers themselves. And so they're, they're genuinely, if, you, if you're enjoying their perspective, this is an extension and addition to that. Yeah, that's that's super awesome. Uh, we, of course, will have links to that uh, in the show notes for anybody who wants to pick that up from the DMs. Mm -hmm. um, see, oh, I did for I forgot, Ben, I forgot. It's something I always I always try and ask any any book writers that we have on. What is what is the if you can say what is the piece of content that was left on the cutting room floor that you wish you had room. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't really 
<laughs> I can't really say, you know, uh, uh, I, I would say that we have to cut in all places. And um, that's just a, 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 a challenge of the, the 220 page uh, book limit on this. Sure, yeah. um, you know, I, I think easily we could have gotten in my ideal world, we would have had a, a 320 page book. But I also I think we would have needed at least another six to eight months of development to make that possible. So we'll just say that hopefully it's going to be coming in a future book. Yeah, I would love to see yep. that. There you go. I always got to ask. Always got to ask. <laughs> okay, you know what? You know, what? I will get. I will give you one. I will give you one piece of content. Okay, um, and this okay. is particularly from the Radiant Citadel. Um, let me see if I can dig up the file um, because I will actually read it to you. Um, and. Uh, here. This is this is the behind the scenes yeah, yeah. content <laughs> that you all pay zero dollars for. Um, yeah, let me get it. Um, oh my god, why is it not showing up? It's okay. While you while you look, uh, yeah. I'll also say the other thing. Uh, there was a new Unearthed Arcana released. Uh, just this this past week called Wonders of the Multiverse. Uh, it's a pretty uh, hefty one, honestly. Like uh, yep, 12, 12 pages. pages. Yeah, of stuff. Uh, new new character cast, the Glitchling, um, or new character race, the Glitchling, uh, and the different traits. There's new, uh, new cleric subclass, the Fate domain, uh, which is uh, pretty dang cool. Uh, new backgrounds uh, and feats, uh, some of them level-based, which are always kind of interesting. It's an uh, interesting direction that's being moved um, and kind of ties in uh, strengthening to the character uh, with the, the level, a lot of giant uh, and element-based things. So interesting, uh, uh, of course, you know, the, the, the buzz is Planescape, <laughs> right now <laughs> so uh the, there's definitely a lot of a lot of uh fingers that are pointing in that direction so we'll also have a link uh in the show notes to that if you want to check out the unearthed arcana stuff for uh potential multiverse planescape zone okay all right i found it all right um, and here's here's this this paragraph that got cut from the radiance in Italy itself while all efforts to locate the seven missing civilizations have failed, a rumor persists within the courted whispers of a lich scholar with knowledge of the, of the lost civilizations. He is said to reside in a, in a spire of sapphire within the deep ethereal plane and that he mourns an unimaginable loss. Grim tales speak of his voracious hunger to conquer the radiant Citadel. Oh, there's, that's cool. There's, there's a primary antagonist right there. Yeah. Um, and, and it got cut for both space reasons, and then I was a little bit of a thematic. Like, right, you know, at the at the, at the onset, it was like, hey, I, I didn't really set up the radiant Citadel to have direct antagonists, and now make I have, right, this, this lish scholar that leap, lives in a fire of sapphire in the deep of their point um, is definitely... A potential danger and a risk. Um, I know its story. It, it ties into things that I've already hinted in in the Radiant Citadel. If you read the text closely, it it, it should be obvious. Um, and I would I would 
I would argue that it becomes even more obvious if you th- if you take my full body of work uh, into context. And this is this is a throwback or callback to something else entirely that's not in this book. So there's there's definitely Easter eggs that are that are in here all across the board. But yeah, because I'm Very I'm, cool. I'm just looking at two words right here because you know I've got the book open and it's just a sapphire wyvern. But you know whatever. <laughs> I'm sure it has nothing to do with that. Probably not. Sapphire wy- wyverns, a spire of sapphire, um, unimaginable loss. I wonder what's going on here, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. So. I'm, I'm, oh. I, they're unrelated. It's just, you know. Probably. The sapphires are oh, pretty. Just coincidence. I, I will give you one more thing that, that happened um, that got cut. I had a sapphire conch or jewel that was ruined and desiccated, like desiccated floating around in like a dead orbit around the, oh. the radiant citadel. Oh, and that was also, that was also cut once again for like, you know, space usage or time. It wasn't actually just like line space. And it was just like, okay, you know, let, let's cut this. Um, but yeah, there, there, there was originally uh, echoing both the, 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 the wyvern and maybe which is sitting in a <laughs> spire of sapphire. Um, there was a, you know, a dead Concord jewel floating in an opera, inoperable uh, around um, the, the radiant signal. Well, you've already got my DM mind just humming and, and connecting and creating. So, I mean, that's just, a, that's enough for me. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. That's, happy that's to do that. Fun. That's super fun. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get when you ask that question, but uh, usually it's always very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you all get something that I have not said in any interview so far. Both of those pieces are brand new. To, to oh, that's so fun. Enough. It's not come up anywhere. So Very fun. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Oh, man, this is this has just been such a such a wonderful conversation, wonderful evening. I'm I'm just so happy that we were able to to get this worked out and the timing. Uh thank you so much, Ajit, for thank you. coming and uh just giving us tons of wisdom and insight, uh, especially into this amazing book. Um I wanted to, uh, right now, uh, before we kind of hop to our final segment, give you time to promote any of your stuff, any of your links, if anybody wants to follow you or uh, check into more of the things you've done, where would they go to do that? Yeah, I, I think I'm probably most active social media wise on on Twitter, uh, for good or for bad. Um, I am Ajit George SB uh, at Twitter. Um, pretty easy to find me, I think, or you just... Search my name, Aja George, and you should be able to find my Twitter handle. Um, that's really where I'm the most active. I've got a website too. Um, I have a Facebook as well, uh, but I don't usually post a lot there, except maybe more Shanti Bubbin work stuff. I've been posting D and D stuff and my my wife stuff there too. Um, in terms of things I'd like to promote, I think the thing that I, I am not really involved in it, but I am really excited for it, and I think. For people who want to try something weird and different and, and, and like uh, LARPing, or if, even if you don't like LARPing and you want to try it for the first time, there's a vampire LARP uh, called Saturnalia that being held in New Orleans in November. And it is like amazingly like well run. The team that is in charge of it is incredible. Um, it's rules light, so you're not going to have to like learn a ton of rules. You're just going to have a lot of fun. And it's taking place all over all over the French Quarter. They've got like a vampire bar that they've worked out. They've got a steamboat. Um, I mean, it's just wild. Like we are going to be all over the place. And it's actually using 
I believe, the, like a mansion that um, part of the new uh, interview with a vampire uh, TV series is filmed. Really? Same location. Yeah, same That's location. super cool. Yes, it's super cool. Um, I am stoked as hell for it. So, like, if you folks want to check out, I, it, it is, I believe, I think they got something. They got a, they got the coolest domain. It's vampirelarp.com. Um, and you got you, yeah, you check out vampirelarp.com and you will find um, the information there. So um, I, I'm stoked to it. I will be there. My wife will be there with, with Mr. Spalton. Um, and there will be a lot of interesting and cool folks there. So it's, it's going to be a game worth checking out. Yeah, uh, that's that the, the the LARPing aspect is something I've never done, but has always been something really interesting because uh, I just got into Vampire recently. Uh, just like a year or so ago, um, by uh, L.A. by Night and now now New York by Night, um, they do fantastic production over there with uh, Jason Carl. Um, and so uh, that does sound super fun. <laughs> yeah, I think I think first time LARPers are the greatest. I, I think Ryan just you know if you're interested and you're like up for like a really high production, really good quality kind of LARP, it's it's worth checking out. They're they're going to do a second line parade. There's just so many things. It's just a wild, a trippy kind of experience. Basically just like yeah. a, like a game based improv, right? It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, you should, you should think of it as like improv. It, it's, you know, take away the dice and take away like the table and you're just, you're, you're in costume, you dress up and you, and you role play um, just as you might role play it at the table, but you're just standing and you're, it's a little bit like improv. Uh, and, and I find that first time LARPers actually often, more interesting than like super seasoned developers because they don't come in with any preconceptions. They're just like, I'm going to have fun and role play. And that's what it is. It, it should be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. And um, I love, you know, when we talk about D&D, my, 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 my first love was D&D, but my second love was World of Darkness. And, and those two games really uh, hold almost equal space in my heart. Um, and what is kind of cool is a couple of the writers from uh, Journey to the Rain Citadel have uh, written for, um, for World of Darkness. Um, I know... Mario Octagon has Aaron Roberts, I believe Bashir Ghost, uh, I think Pamela Ponzalin as well. Uh, but multiple writers have, have written for World of Darkness. So that's awesome. Some crossover yeah. and your your yeah. your hobbies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, awesome. Uh, so if that sounds interesting, we'll have the website in the show notes as well. Check that out. Um, as always, before we go, uh, we'll take the last few minutes here to talk a little bit about uh, some of our games. And uh, I know, uh, Ajit, uh, <laughs> we, we talked a little bit about it at the beginning. Uh, have, you, have you thought or do you have any cool uh, D&D stories, moments, or even from Radiant Citadel play sessions that you thought were really cool that might be fun to share? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this question, and if it were to be very specific to D&D, I'm going to throw back to, um, you know, my high school campaign, if you don't mind. It's an oh, old go. school no, game. Oh, no. That's great. But it, it, it was so formative to me. Um, play from, from from freshman year through senior year with my my high school biology teacher was our GM. And it uh, wow. was amazing. Yeah, he was super cool. That's he, super cool. Yeah, I, I'm, I think I kept my sanity in a, in a very repressive high school uh, because of him and my like nerds who were in that like group, but we played this this campaign that we're in for four years. And in the beginning, 
I was like this elven paladin that was like pure and good and one of the 12 chosen of this, this elven god and kind of followed everything through. I'm also a teenage boy that kind of is like, whatever, right? You know, at a certain point, um, you know, in the story, it was senior year. We killed um, my, my god's arch enemy, um, who was an evil demigod. And uh, we found out that like he became a demigod by these like various mystical objects. And so we, we, we buried these mystical objects. So particularly it was a sword that was giving him a lot of his power. Um, and we buried them and hid them away because they were evil and giving him a tournament demigod. And then I, I think, I don't remember what I asked of my god, but I asked something and my god was like, no, we're not, I'm not giving you that. Um, and I was like, really petulant and angry so <laughs> I, I secretly i secretly went back to like where we hid the sword um and i dug it up and i picked it up and it turned into an evil tamayo i just did this petulant teenage fit of like of, of, of anger that i was denied something that my god had uh, i had asked of my god i decided to turn into like uh, his arch enemy and i turned into my god the other players did not realize this. It was like done off camera or like private sessions with the GM and like sometimes we're doing, it was like most of the table then we also almost did like a play by post where we'd, we'd send like, you know, messages to the, to the GM about the things we were doing. So I became this evil demigod and I slowly secretly corrupted the rest of the party and they all <laughs> ended up worshiping me. <laughs> I became the new god. And then when they found out, they all beat me up. And they were so angry. They were like so pissed. And I was like, yo, I was like, come on, guys, I'm your god. Just just do what I tell you to do for now. <laughs> they, were, they were not amused by that phrase. I was like, we're at a Burger King. I'm like, I'm your god. Go get me a Whopper. <laughs> no, they, were, they, were not, they did not find that funny. Uh, so so uh, that, was, that was definitely ridiculous me, teenage me, uh, and my absurdity uh, in senior year of high school. You're like, uh, Sure. That's I mean, great. that's a culmination to a four-year campaign. That's yeah, that's pretty yeah. cool too. That's a good ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, ben, what about you? What do you um, got going? Well, last we left off, uh, my party was uh, had gotten plans for the castle. They're going to try to infiltrate and you know uh, dig in and find information and uh, you know hopefully a smoking gun for this conspiracy that's been going on that they're, you know, still trying to fully fit together. Um, so we have a changeling in our party, uh, the sorcerer. He went ahead and got one of the, the palace guards completely drunk and passed out, uh, on top of that, gave him a sleeping potion, changed shape, took his, his uh, armor and everything snuck in and, uh, started kind of going around the castle, just, uh, uh, you know, touring the castle looking in every room seeing what he can find out and everything meanwhile our cleric has a borrowed cloak of invisibility has that on snuck in around and is uh going through the buildings outside went to this dilapidated like just tiny temple and everything that you know locked up and all that went inside everything was you know, kind of normal went into a basement and found like this sacrificial thing going on like there's a uh, this this you know, something is, is draining energy from this thing. He disrupted it. I mean, there's nobody else in there. So he disrupted this thing that's just kind of going on and then uh, snuck his way back out. The changeling was about to go to the second floor. He snuck out of this you know little dilapidated temple. And then all of a sudden a loud horn sounded. So they have no idea what it is or what's going on. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to be picking that back up uh, this Saturday. And I'm very excited for what's going to happen. 
certain awesome. certain rituals you just don't interrupt. I mean, <laughs> come yeah, on. that sounds like it sounds like trouble's coming their way. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be great. I'm I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Ryan, what about you? I know you're you're working on two campaigns right now. I do. I've got I've got two campaigns, both both in my my home homebrew world of Galathria, and the uh, my my first one. They uh, it started with a bang. We actually got to play in person. Uh, hey. So much fun. We had like we did like a breakfast buffet. And we played in the morning, and it, awesome. it was it was magical. Um, it's the first time we've done it, and you know. It, pandemic land and so yeah. being able to get back together was was wonderful uh they they started off with a bang because uh they're they're off to the shadow fell to find uh my ranger rogues uh parents uh one of them who is a denizen in the shadow fell and uh her not very nice grandmother who is holding her father hostage uh so they're gonna go try and and see what's up so that she can meet her parents uh unfortunately on the teleportation roll they rolled very poorly and got sped out 300 feet in the air uh from a portal so that was super fun that's how we started the session off it's just like you exit and you're 300 feet in the air and so they all had to figure out it was, it was fun figuring out all sorts of ways to to try and not go splash the cleric <laughs> the cleric is the only one who didn't have any sort of flight ability oh, no. and no one could catch him so he cast death ward on himself and splats <laughs> oh. into oh my the ground God. it was it was incredible it was it, it was such awesome. a such a funny moment it, it i guess you know Completely Clutch legitimate spell. way of, of splatting, yeah. splatting into the ground three hundred feet up. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. So that was so that was super fun. Um, and so they they started started their journey to uh, try and find her parents. So that's a that's a super. I, I I'm so excited for this arc. I've been prepping for this arc for a long time, and the Shadowfell is just such a fun, weird, uh, absolutely horrible place. <laughs> <laughs> so, lots of lots of fun things we're gonna do in that and then my my other campaign uh is uh they have this they have this airship they they it's a much more politically focused campaign they went and freed this sapphire dragon uh from this one this house that was mining it out and mining out their cave got a new ally it was one of the two mining locations that the house they allied with had given them uh and instead of going back and reporting, they decided let's do the second one too, the the much bigger let's the the actual full on disruption of resources and travel and such. Turns out it was a terrible idea because <laughs> word of their uh, basically laying waste to the first mine and freeing the dragon uh, had gotten back to them, and so as they come in from the clouds on their little airship, they're met with this giant dreadnought of an airship. That launches oh, no. these these skiffs out at them to try and capture them. Uh, it was it was an absolutely wild air combat session. They took. I have very inventive players. They took their ballista. Their ship has little ballistas. This other thing has these giant spell cannons that's just decimating their <laughs> ship. They hooked a chain to a ballista, shot it, and this was a all mechanical on the fly. Me going, okay, what are you going to do? All right, there's a 15 damage threshold to get the ballista in the skiff. Boom, they did it. Druid wild shapes into an allosaurus, grabs the chain. I'm like, all right, strength check to pull it. Does it. I was like, okay, roll to hit. Rolls to hit. 
and slams one skiff into a, a second skiff in the sky Whoa. as an allosaurus <laughs> holding onto a chain from a ballista they shot. It was it was the the craziest thing That's I've wild. ever seen. It was everyone was everyone was so pumped. Uh, yeah, that, those they, moments are fantastic. It was, it was such a great moment. They got captured, but they still have <laughs> that moment. <laughs> they still have that moment. They took out all the skiffs. It was it was super impressive. Uh, Super fun, but now they get to meet some of the big players in the uh, kind of ruling house uh, now. Uh, next session, so I'm I'm pretty excited about that. And it was it was two good sessions. It was uh, Very cool. stuff stuff's happening. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is going to be it for us. Uh, Ajit, again, thank you so much. Yes. For coming, uh, is absolute pleasure. I'm so glad uh, we were able to have you. Uh, thank you for your knowledge and wisdom and just chatting and your experience. I love hearing, especially for the, the official published books, some of the hi- behind the scenes mm-hmm. stuff and how it just takes a, a village to put these these things together. It is. It is a community effort and it, it is really a, about a team, not, not a single individual. I, I had the honor and privilege of being um, you know, the, the co-lead uh, on this project, but um, it is it is the work of all the writers, all the artists, all the editors, everybody, the consultants that worked on it. And I'm really grateful for everybody's hard work and um, I'm, I'm touched by, you know, how positive the community has been taking it. So uh, thank you for both for having me on. This was a great conversation. And, and I think, you know, the questions kind of led me in, into new directions where I hadn't really expanded on. I think your love of the Don Incarnates um, you know, because you're, I think the first interview is to really go into detail about the Don Incarnates or push her a little bit about it. And so that made me go, okay, well, let me tell you a little bit more about it. And so that was my first, I think the first time I've ever talked about the Don Incarnates in more detail about, well, you know, what, what, yeah, what, what you could do with the spirits inside of them and kind of how that could be really rich role playing beyond like a lore dump. And mm-hmm. similarly, I have, I, I have never discussed uh, those two cut, cut pieces um, <laughs> from Ray to Citadel before. So, <laughs> If you want more and you're like, I, I, I want to I give a little bit more threat to the readings at all, that, that is actually what I had envisioned. And, and it, um, it throws back to something else I've written in the past. So we'll just put it that way. Um, so yeah, there's, there's another there. book. There's another book you wrote on. Yeah, so I, I think you can connect the dots there. Yeah, there's some through lines there. So. We'll awesome. Be yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the Don Incarnates definitely drew me. The, it was the art first. The yeah. art hooked me mm-hmm. in, and I was like, "Oh, this is so cool! They're made up of all these gems." Where's the section about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I, you get very lucky sometimes with art, and this book has phenomenal art through definitely. and through. Um, yeah, and I was very happy with the art, but certainly one of my favorite moments. The preserve of the ancestors, the, the um, you know the dragonborn, you know presenting to to the amethyst tiger Don mm-hmm. incarnate, that's um, great, and, and asking for its for its wisdom, um, which is an incredible moment, and just one of my favorite pieces of art in the book, and of course just the incarnates themselves, and, and definitely the work there. Uh, the artist, I think I forget her name, but she, um, it's you can just find it on the in the book itself, like the credits for the artists are there, uh, but she's she was phenomenal and is so happy with. That's that's one of my favorite pieces in the um, book so far. No question. All right. Well, thank ben. you both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh it's it's it was just an amazing, amazing conversation. Um really, really happy we were able to do it. Uh Ben, why don't you tell everybody 
we can be reached. Exactly. Or you bet. Um, <laughs> well, if you have any questions, comments, uh, want to uh, tell us some of your favorite things about the Journey to the Radiant Citadel, go ahead and send those emails to dndiscussions at gmail.com. Or if you want to share what you're doing in your own home campaigns, because we love to hear from you. Um, if you want to do something a little more short form, you can find us on Twitter. We are at dndiscussions. Uh, if you're looking for Ryan specifically, he is at tbkzord. If you're looking for me, I am at Ben Bumhofer. Um, and of course, uh, if this is the first episode you've ever listened to and you want to hear more from us, uh, check out Dean Discussions on your podcast player of choice. Because granted, uh, granted um, I guarantee you that wherever you're listening to us right now, the other episodes are also there. It's really easy to find us that way. Uh, and then last but not least, if you want to actually hear us playing in a game, uh, we actually are on a uh, persistent campaign. It is plus five to hit. You can find us there. Uh, we are currently doing our summer hiatus uh we have taken our first steps into strixhaven which is really fun and interesting and so rp heavy and we are having a blast with that so check that out um but that being said thank you very much for listening uh thank you very much for joining us again and everybody until next time be good to each other take care and we'll see you soon